0: Good morning, everyone. If you have been a Christian for any length of time and you've taken your faith seriously and let it kind of bleed over into the other aspects of your life, you may have heard the question, who do you Christians think you are, right? Um, Now, it sounds like a question, but it really feels more like an accusation, and when you hear that kind of thing, it's intended to shut the conversation down. Hopefully, as you've been a Christian for a while, you've also heard that question asked a little bit differently. Who do you Christians think you are? Well, as opposed to the first question that's trying to shut down the conversation, the second way that it's being asked is hoping to open up the conversation. Either way, it's a good question that's worthy to be answered. At its core, the question, who do Christians think they are, is a question about identity. Now, identity is a really important concept. I know it might seem a bit abstract, but it really plays out in our lives in all kinds of ways. Our identity is made up of all the things in our life that give us a sense of ourselves. It informs the place we occupy in our world. Uh, it, it gives us the borders and the boundaries of our personality in some ways, and it can give you meaning and, and purpose. Your identity can inform and determine how you will act, behave, and live, and sometimes feel in your life. That's how important personal identity is. I was reading the Journal of Biblical Counseling this week, and there was a great quote in it. I want to read it to you. The question of identity is a meta-question, he says. In other words, it's a big question that ties together many smaller ones. You can't answer the big question completely without the smaller questions, and you can't answer the smaller questions without getting at the really big ultimate question of who you are. The question of identity, it's really important, but it's also kind of complex because it it, it has different components to it. On the one hand, it has a a real subjective aspect to it. Identity is about how you feel about who you are. Now, if you like uh, psychology or philosophy, that would be the existential aspect of your identity, your experience of it, how you feel about yourself, that is part of your identity. But there's also an objective aspect of someone's identity, and, and that's more the situational aspect, and that is who you actually are. So there's how, who you feel you are, and then who you actually are. Now from a Christian worldview, we bring something even, uh, even more to that question that's really important that you don't find a lot in the secular literature on co- talk conversations about identity, and you would call that the normative aspect, and that is what you ought to be. So, there's this who you feel you are, uh, who you actually are, and who you ought to be. And, and those three, very important, triangulate the horizons of your life. Now, if you read any secular psychology or literature on this, and I tend to agree, they would say that the feeling of anxiety people often get is when they uh, subconsciously or unconsciously uh, experience the disconnect from who they feel they are from what they actually are. And that sense of disconnect is what breeds, uh, brings anxiety into us. Now, from a Christian worldview, we have even a more complex understanding of that, or more nuanced understanding, is that the difference between who you feel you are, from who you actually are, from who you are supposed to be, all those disconnects you experience, and that can cause a sense of anxiety. Now, that's a whole other sermon series, and we're not really going to talk into that, but This series is also not about our individual identity as much as it is about our corporate identity. Now, when I say corporate identity, I don't want you to think corporation, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm using the word corporate simply to mean a group setting, that we have together as Christians a corporate identity, and that's really important. Now, for some of you, you're in. You're like, you're paying attention because you say, hey, this is a, identity is a big topic because you've got identity politics, you have people having identity crises, so I'm in. Some of you might take a little bit more convincing because, after all, you're like, let's just talk to, about Revelation, more dragons, more beasts, and more man-eating locusts. Can we just do that? So, let me give you an illustration to show you the importance of identity in everyday life, an illustration, I think, that, that most of you can probably relate to in varying degrees. Let's say you're giving a presentation, whether it's at the office or the firm or in your classroom. And you're a little bit nervous because, A, you're giving a presentation in front of people, and that's always a little bit nervous. But B, maybe your quarter sales depend on you sealing the deal. Maybe your promotion's on the line. Maybe a big chunk of your semester grade rides on on this presentation. But the good news is, You are crushing this presentation. It's one of those moments. It's all coming together. Your points are flowing. You're connecting the dots. You are on fire. You own the room. You're in the power stance. You own the room. As a matter of fact, somebody in the back pulled out their smartphone and took a picture of you. You are just owning this. You wrap up the presentation, head held high, the envy of the room. You are feeling the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Shekinah glory is here. Boom. You're the man or woman, whatever it might be. And as you take your seat, you look down and realize that your zipper was wide open the whole time. And everyone saw that you were wearing your good luck Sesame Street boxers. Now, how do you feel? How do you feel in that moment? You went from the uber-competent presentation power presenter to some bozo who doesn't have the presence of mind to zip up their pants. What's changed? Nothing. And everything. Because your identity went from the competent guy or woman who's just crushing it to a total bozo because you couldn't even pull up your zipper. Far from being confident, having your head held high, you kind of slink off into the corner, you turn your seat to try to zip it up when you know everyone already knows your zipper was down. You're not confident and bold now. You're kind of sheepish and maybe even a little bit apologetic wishing you could disappear. Jesus would take you away, whatever it is. Your identity matters huge. Your sense of who you are determines how you will feel, how you will carry yourself, and what you will do, how you will behave. This series, Who Do Christians Think They Are?, is to help us think and answer that question at a corporate level. What is our corporate identity as Christians? After all, Christians have a corporate identity. Are we the moral police? Is our job to kind of go around society and make sure that we, we minimize public displays of affection, right, or you know, violently giving people tickets when they violate that. Remember a high school camp, you walk around and tell these couples, hey, make room for the Holy Spirit. You're too close, you know, that kind of a thing. Is that what Christians are, the moral police of society? Are we a loosely affiliated group of like-minded individuals who vote a particular way? So we are just another political block like some other political block. Are we people who are interested in obscure ancient doctrines and any irre- irrelevant arguments that don't have any application to modern life? Are we just slightly more cooler than the Amish? because we live in South Orange County and not Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Are we all of these? Are we none of these? Are we some of these? Are we something altogether different? And if so, what? And why does it make a difference? That's what we want to address in this series this morning. If you are a Christian, do you know who Christians are? Did you even realize that Christians are something more than people who personally believe Jesus' stuff? Do you realize that being a Christian means more than a personal relationship with God? Did you realize that being a Christian means you have a corporate relationship with God as well? If you're not a Christian and you're visiting with us, who, are, who do you think you Christians are? Do you think they're the moral police, and that's why you have a, a hard time with, with Christians? Because nobody should have the right to say what's wrong and right. Are we just a right-of-center political community, Are we people who believe weird things about Jesus still being alive and being king? Who do you think Christians are? This morning, as the introduction to our five-week series, we want to talk about three identities that seem correct and actually are correct, but because they're not complete, they can distort our understanding of what a Christian is and what Christianity is in general, Next week, I want to build upon that foundation about who we are as a people, and then the three weeks after that, we're going to tease out all the implications of what it means for us as a church. So, three three identities that seem correct but are not complete we're going to look at this morning. Let's look at them each one at a time briefly. Let's start with what I call the doctrinalists. Now, the doctrinalists, you know the type, these are the ones I say they're always into, like, theology and doctrine. They're always at the Bible studies. They're always argue to, ready to argue finer theological points. Uh, they always want to talk about what they're learning or what they're reading, right? Their, their life verse is something like 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved, or Romans 12.2, be renewed by the transformation of your mind. They're the person that's always thinking cerebrally about Christianity, being about how much you know. If you state anything theologically suspect... They're the ones that's going to email you or send you a text message, or they're the ones that are going to raise your hand in the Bible study and try and correct you. The doctrinalist. Maturity in Christ is equal to how much you know. So, for them, what I say, the focus of the Christian life is orthodox Christian teaching. Do you know any doctrinalists? Don't raise your hand, but do you know any doctrinalists in your life? Maybe you're a doctrinalist, right? Now, to be honest, their concern does make some sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you're paying attention at all, there's, quite frankly, if we're being honest, a lot of bonkers Christian teaching that's floating around there in our society, right? So there's a reason some people are doubling down and making Christianity about about theology and doctrine, and that's what they're getting at, because a lot of what's in the church is just, quite frankly, bonkers. Secondly, there's place for their concern because not enough Christians are taking the life of the mind seriously enough. That's just the reality. Biblical literacy. I was talking to a friend of mine who teaches at Talbot. We spent the weekend together. He says the incoming classes he gets of students, this isn't the way he said it because it's much more diplomatic because he's a professor. I'm a preacher. I'm more of a prophet. I would say they're getting stupider and stupider. The the crop of young people leaving churches are dumbing down, not getting smarter, even though we live in a, a a time when we have books and resources and literacy abounding Biblical literacy is plummeting. So there's a reason why the doctrinalists ju- is justified in thinking about Christianity this way. Now, let me give you a quote from a gentleman named Charles Malik. He, at one time, was, um, I guess, the, uh, the President of the General Assembly of the United Nations. This is what he says. I must be frank with you. The greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. The mind in its greatest and deepest reaches, is not cared for enough. A couple of years ago, I was reading a book by philosopher J.P. Moreland, Love Your God With All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. Great book, really recommend you get your hands on it and read it. He's quoting in his book from Newsweek magazine, and, and the, the, the Newsweek magazine is getting at the same issue, but from a more positive direction. This is what he says, English professor Carolyn Kane wrote an article in Newsweek about the loss of thinking in American culture generally. After putting her finger squarely on the problem, Kane identified her solution in the front of God and the Newsweek readership. But how can we revive interest in the art of thinking? The best place to start would be in the homes and churches of our land. Now, I don't know if Professor Kane is a Christian or not. Moreland doesn't say in his book but I find it so interesting that she does not put the solution at the feet of government, nor at the feet of the public educational system, but she says the, re- the, re- the revived thinking must start in the homes and churches of our land. So, friends, I guess what I'm trying to say, it's not without reason that Christians can become doctrinalists, isn't there? And, and honestly, Scripture does say, quoted 2 Timothy 2.15, We are to study to show ourselves approved. The Greek word behind study, spudazo, it means to strain, to strive after, and in the semantic range of that word, you could say even sweat. We are to sweat as we study the Word of God. We put so much effort to understand it. When I was 24, uh, a mentor of mine in Bible college, I would visit his office a couple of times, and the first few times I just ignored it, but finally, probably the fourth or fifth time, I said, Larry why do you have these muddy, beat-up construction shoes in your office? It's like, is that, is that yours? What's going on? And he says, those are there to remind me that every time I sit down to study, that I ought to be working as hard as those men and women digging those trenches in the summer sun. That I need to be at the text, working hard, just like construction workers work hard. We are to study. We are to have our minds renewed daily by God's word. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So these things are true. We do study, we do have our minds renewed, but we always have to remember what Paul wrote to his young protege in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Friends, the danger of being a doctrinalist is that you're totally disconnected from the way you're living your life. And friends, you can have all the knowledge of Christianity you want, all the knowledge of theology and all those things, but if, 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 if your life is a wreck, if you've got just broken relationship after broken relationship, if your Christian witness is producing more heat than actual light, that's not what a Christian is. That's not what a Christian is. And by the way, um, this isn't just a mistaken identity that's, that happens in the church. This happens outside in the world too, whether you're religious or not religious, We see this mistaken identity in the world and the overemphasis of, of schooling and education in our culture. It's an example of this. The belief that all of our ills in society could be solved if people only knew better, if people were only more educated, if we just had more knowledge, we could overcome any obstacle there is and we could have a better, kinder, gentler society kind of thinking. Well, friends, if you know anything about human nature, you know that's very naive, and that's not what we need. If actually anything, if knowledge and education becomes a source of pride for people, it's just another way to put a notch on my belt how I'm different from you. Oh, you went to college. Yeah, I went to grad school. Oh, no, I went to post-grad school. And on and on it goes. Makes us more proud. Divides us. Makes us feel like because we are the experts, we don't have to listen to the voice of common sense. Friends, whether you're religious or you're not religious, the doctrinalists should know we need more than just information. That's why being a Christian is not just simply knowing information about Jesus. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus. It's living a lifestyle of love that Jesus both modeled and proclaimed. A Christian is not someone who simply learns about Jesus, but it's someone whose lifestyle is being changed by Jesus. And that's what the doctrinalist often misses. Unfortunately, though, because of the way the human heart functions, you may not be a doctrinalist because you agree with everything that's the problem with that. You, on the other hand, go the other direction and have another mistaken identity. And if the doctrinalist Mistakes being a Christian as simply knowing doctrine and having knowledge of Christianity. The second one that I call the Pietists makes a similar mistake, but just in the opposite direction. For them, being a Christian is all about just kind of practical Christian living and not really about getting bogged down in the heavy duty stuff. And so for them, the pietists, they don't look at Scripture as God's special revelation like the doctrinalists might. They don't study it. They don't dive into it. They don't see it as, a, as, a, as the revelation of God's redemptive historical work of Christ, in Christ for our benefit. They see the Bible as more of a, it's more of like a devotional book, and it relates to us more psychologically and emotionally. It's not so much about truth and error, heaven or hell, obedience or disobedience. It's more about how you can just kind of get through your day feeling pretty good. For the pietists, Jesus is often more like a life coach than he is master and commander, right? For the pietists in our contemporary culture, they can be more a consumer of Jesus than a worshiper of Jesus. In other words, what I mean is that where Jesus and His teachings might fit their moral compass, it works out great. They they, they take on that change. And let's be honest, if your morality leans conservative, you're more likely to agree to what you find in the Bible. But where the hard teachings of Jesus challenge you and the idolatries of your heart, it's very easy for the pietists to say, oh, that's that unnecessary doctrine, and, you know, knowledge puffs up stuff. We don't need to actually think about that or be challenged by that. We don't have to take it that way. Seriously, Do you know any pietists? Don't raise your hand or don't point, <laughs> right? Are you a pietist? You want to know how you might be a pietist? Number one, here's a couple ways to know if you might be a pietist. It's pretty easy to spot the doctrinalists. They got the biggest Bibles and they have all the tags and the colors and all that. But the pietists, if you have not grieved over your sin. In the last few months you might be a pietist i'm not saying grieving over your wife's sin right or grieving over your husband's sin or grieving over other people's sin but you might be a pietist if you haven't grieved over the sin in your own heart yet you might be a pietist if you don't want anyone to hold you accountable for an area of your life you know you need to grow and change in but you don't want anyone in your grill challenging you you might be a pietist you just want to feel good. You don't want to feel bad, but you want to feel good about your faith. You might be a pietist. You might be a pietist if the only books you ever read are popular level Christian living books and not books about the character of God, the work of Christ, sanctification by grace through faith. You might be a pietist. But don't read too many of those books because then what happens? You might be a doctrinalist. You see how tricky this can be. But friends, let's say this, though. An overall emphasis on life change is a good thing, isn't it? After all, we looked at this. Keep a close watch, not just on your teaching, you doctrinalists, but how you live. That's really important. So, friends, here's the reality. Both the pietists and the doctrinalists both emphasize something that is true about our faith, which is why it's easy to to kind of glob onto it and why it's also easy to mistakenly make that our identity. I mean, after all, who's going to say, yeah, there's something wrong with orthodox Christian teaching? Or who's going to say, oh, there's something wrong with practical Christian living? Being a Christian, after all, means that your life actually changes in specific, identifiable ways that other people can actually see the progress. Look at one verse before uh, Paul writes this, what he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Paul's not just talking about an intellectual exam you might take, but the way you live your life should reveal that change. My wife likes to say, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Not of the things you say. Say, Talk is cheap. But if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in the way you actually live to convict you? We have to think about that. And, And just like the doctrinalists, there is a a, a kind of non-Christian version of the pietist. And, and I'll be honest with you, as I look upon the church and I look upon our society, I think the pietist is probably the most predominant thing. We see this in the church and also in the culture at large. I think it, I mean, it's always been around, but it seems to have kind of ramped up in the, you know, baby boomer generation. No offense, not blaming you, but that just seems to be, it kind of became the thing then, right? You guys remember the Beatles, the classic song, all you need is love. Really? Is that all we need? right now honestly i think he's right but the question is love is a very abused word so what do we mean by it because i guarantee you if john lennon had himself a in and out cheeseburger he would love that cheeseburger But he would also say that the affection he has for that meal isn't what he means by that's the thing that solves all the world's problems. So when we say love is all we need, we have to ask the question, what is that love and who defines that love? Because if you look around our society, friends, there's a lot of loves out there, isn't there? There are a lot of loves out there. Do we mean the, the sentimental love? all based upon how we feel. So, if I feel like loving you, it's okay, I'll love you, but if I don't feel like it, I'm not going to love you. Is that what we mean by love? Do we mean the the romanticized view of love that's about expressing ourselves, about me being authentic without any kind of judgment uh, about my behavior or its consequences? Is that what we mean by love? Do we mean the consumeristic kind of love where we'll share love together as so long as you fit me and my, what I want and I fit you and what you want, we'll share love, but when that doesn't happen, we won't have love anymore? So do we mean the sentimental love? Do we mean the consumeristic love? Do we mean the romanticized love? What kind of love do we mean? Because none of those sound like a good foundation to build your life, let alone society on. But this is all the loves that are out there. And by the way, by the way as, as you look at these loves, they all cheapen every relationship to just selfish transactions. So, the culture that we have that is just love, just doesn't matter what you believe and your convictions, as long as you're loving, by those definitions, all my relationships are just cheapened to just transactions that accommodate my selfish desires or your selfish desires. That's not a good foundation for your life or society, which is why the Bible contrasts a different kind of love, It holds on a different kind of love, a biblical love, a love that is holy, a love that actually makes demands upon you, a love that yields obedience, a love that does not rejoice in evil but rejoices in good. You see, it is a love that has teeth to it. And this biblical love, it's a love that transforms. It's a love that not only makes demands but also makes those demands possible by those who embrace it. That's a transformative love. And so it's very easy to kind of then glob onto that as our identity, which, by the way, then becomes the third mistaken identity that we Christians have. So you can have the identity of, I'm a doctrinalist, I'm all into the theology and doctrine, because, man, this stuff is too cool and people got to know about this. But then I realize I'm not living as best as I should be. My life is not reflecting that change. I'm kind of a theological grumpy crank or whatever. And so then I actually start making changes in my life. And then I think Christianity is all about just kind of these superficial changes and not realizing that's not really transforming me in my soul. And then I can go on to this next kind of identity thing, which I call the activists. So there's the doctrinalists. There's the pietists. Now you got the activists. Now, the activist can either be the, the doctrinalist or the pietist without the self-centeredness. What I mean by that is they view that their Christianity has to make an impact in the world around them, right? It, it is not good to just be focused on my own knowledge or my own change. It's out of, got, got to go out into the world. So for the activist, theology is good. For the activist, practical living's good. But unless your faith is taking you into the world to make a difference, it's not Christianity at all. And so this is how it might look. If you tend to lean more conservative or traditional, that activism shows itself in, man, you're about missions, you're about evangelism, and you're about outreach. If your kind of bent is more a little bit more liberal, a little bit more progressive, that activism looks like you're serving at the food bank and volunteering at the homeless shelter. But either of them share the same component. It's about going out there into the world because it's about change. It's about change. It's not about knowledge. It's not even about your own life being different. It's about making a change in the world. And so for the activists, the Bible is certainly not a theological textbook, but it's also not just a devotional thing for my own personal enjoyment. It's like a handbook for social change. And so, if you happen to be more conservative, you like Matthew 28, 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, we got to get out there. If you're more liberal, man, Isaiah 117 is your thing. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. And by the way, who's going to argue with either one of those? In fact, this is culturally, the t- we're at a cultural moment where this is the thing that's resonating more than anything. And, and where they're looking at the church and say, yeah, you got your doctrine, you got your own, your pious lifestyles, but are you actually making a difference in the world around you? And here's the good thing, friends. Yes, we, we've got some missteps there that as a church we own, but let me also say this if you are a part of, chur- of the church, you are part of one of the most powerful social justice machines that the world has ever known. That's not an opinion, that's fact. Whether it's the ending of the gladiatorial games in ancient Rome, or elevating the status of women and minorities worldwide, the the end of the slave trade or the uh, end of slavery in general, wherever the gospel has taken root amongst people in a culture or country, It has broken the chains of bondage, evil, and injustice. That is our heritage. Now, you can see, if you have a broader view of what the church is about, how easy it is to let the identity of an activist be misunderstood of that's what it means to be a Christian. After all, even Jesus says that that's not it. If you're a note taker, write down uh, Luke chapter 10. It's a great scene where where Jesus is sitting down and talking and teaching, and Martha is busy doing all kinds of stuff, and Mary's just sitting at his feet, just dialed in. And and Martha says, Lord, Lord, I'm busy doing all this stuff. Can you tell Martha or Mary to get up and help me? And what does Jesus say? Martha, you are just anxious about all kinds of things. But Mary has chosen the one good thing, and that's not going to be taken from her. Now, you pietists and doctrinalists don't go, see, see, the activists are wrong, but I'm right. That's not the point. The point is there is a balance. And Martha, the activists, misunderstood the balance. You see, each of these, friends, the danger of each of these is they are correct, but they're not complete. But because they're correct, we can embrace them and actually make idols of them and not worship the one true God. You can make an idol out of your theology and your doctrine and miss the very God it talks about. You can make an idol of yourself because you see Him as a means to make your life better. You can make an idol of doing things and be totally detached from the one you're doing it for. Each of these on their own can seem good. That's why they draw us. But if we're not careful, they become substitutes for God Himself, and they become idols, you can see how easy it is for any one of these three to be mistaken for what a Christian is because each of them is a part of what it is to be a Christian. And the problem arises when we kind of glob onto one to the neglect of the others. And this isn't just individuals. I want to give you these categories because I think this is true of us as individuals. Like, I hope you can see oh, I'm more this than I am that, or at this stage of life I tend to be this way. But it's not just true of individuals, even as groups of people were this way. So if you happen to be a Presbyterian or more from a Reformed kind of heritage, where do you think the error is? We're probably going to be more like the doctrinalists, theology, and then just, I mean, just tons of just theological questionnaires and quizzes to be members or to get it right, right? That's where we're at. The majority of Christianity today, evangelical Christianity, we're kind of right there in the middle as pietists. It's about kind of a changed living, right? Just do Jesus stuff kind of thing, but we're a little bit shallow. We look at the doctrinalists and go, oh man, it's not about knowing all this stuff. It's a lot more about how you live. And the doctrinalist looks at the pietists and says, these guys don't even know anything that they're talking about. That's why it's got to be all this. Do you see how the extremes justify one another, Right? So, maybe if you're a Presbyterian or from the Reformed tradition, you're really into doctrine. If you're just a regular evangelical, you're probably more of a pietist. If you come from a black tradition or maybe more progressive tradition like, a, like, a, uh, like the AME churches, guess what you are? You're more the activists, social change, make a difference in the society. So, it's not just as individuals, it's even as groups of people, we can glob onto one of these identities. And because they're correct, we also believe to think, start to think they're complete but they're not. We need to be all these things. Now, let me just kind of show you this thing. I've kind of put together, I guess, a, a statement of, in general, what the Bible in like two or three sentences is trying to tell us. So, here it is. And I'll work through this exercise with you, and then we're done. The Bible teaches that God is creating a people through the work of Jesus Christ, regenerated, changed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go into this world with the good news of salvation that all creation can be remade, renewed, and restored to the praise of God's glory. Now, if you are a Christian, whether you're a doctrinalist, pietist, or activist, you're going to agree with this statement by and large, right? Okay, so the Bible teaches, what is that? That's doctrine. And what does the Bible teach? This whole statement is what the Bible teaches, right? So we can clearly see doctrine is all through it. We've got to know this stuff. But what is the doctrine actually teaching us? It's teaching us that we have to be practically changed regenerated, changed, and empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't know who the Holy Spirit is, if you don't know what it means to be regenerated or empowered, you can't live this way differently. So you see how the two go together. Now, why are we regenerated, changed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit? To actually make an impact, to go into this world with what? Not our own opinions, not our own kind of culture, but with the good news of salvation. And what is that good news? That all creation... Friends, all creation is to be remade, renewed, and restored to the praise of God's glory. So, we have to be all these things simultaneously. Without one of these, we don't understand any of these. We need them all three together. That's why I want to start our series about what our identity is by talking about what we're not to kind of get out of our minds. And I hope this week you think, am I more of a doctrinalist? Am I more of the pietist? Am I more of an activist? So that when we go into this series, maybe you can start thinking, okay, this is a way I can course correct, or this is what I need to add on to my life. Next, we'll talk about what a Christian is, and you'll have to come back next week for that. So, we ended a little bit early, but hey, you guys aren't upset if we end early, are you? (laughs) No, I know you're not. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for um, the fact that we are not orphans who do not know who we are or what You have called us to do. But sometimes it takes kind of just getting back into the Word, thinking about looking around our culture, and thinking about what is it that we Christians are. And Father, we want that to come from Scripture. Lord, forgive us for taking good things that are part of our mandate. Our minds are to be renewed. We are to change in our lifestyles. We are to make an impact in the world, but forgive us for making an idol out of any one of these things and leaving you behind. Father, we know that each of these are an expression of our love for you, and so we ask, Lord, that as we continue to express our love for you in a particular way, we would add on to them that we might be what a Christian is called to do. Father, we want to do all this to the praise of your glory, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.